Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. Recently, the Academy was thrilled to host author Alan Weissman for the launch of his newest book, Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth. In his last book, The World Without Us, Weissman considered what the future of the planet would look like in our absence. In this book, he considers how we might avoid that scenario, asking whether and how people can sustainably thrive without crashing the global ecosystem. Traveling to 21 countries for insights from a broad swath of cultures, ecosystems, scientists, food specialists, and religious leaders, Weissman pursues the concept of a future balance between us and the world. For those of you who don't know my last book, The World Without Us, let me just explain that actually I wrote it because I want a world with us. The idea was a little thought experiment to theoretically wipe us off the map in order to show how quickly the Earth could heal and refill empty niches when relieved of the daily pressures that we heap on it. My hope was that once readers saw this picture of a newly restored healthy planet, they'd be inspired to wonder if there might not be some way to add us back into this picture, only in harmony, not constant combat with the rest of nature. But in trying to determine exactly what that nice balance might be, I ran into a troubling fact, that every four and a half days or so, we add a million more people to the planet. And that didn't sound very sustainable to me. So at the end of The World Without Us, I asked one of the world's most distinguished demographic institutes, which is in Vienna, to compute, all social implications aside, what would happen if we all participated in, chi in China's one-child policy. The surprising answer was that by the end of the century, we'd be back to about 1.6 billion, which was the population of the Earth at the beginning of the 20th century before we doubled our numbers and then doubled again for reasons I will explain presently. But Look, let's be serious. None of us wants some government telling us what to do in our bedrooms and in our private lives. The nature part of human nature is to make more copies of ourselves, as it is with every other organism. So instinctively, the idea of being forced by someone to put the brakes on doing what comes naturally is repellent. China's one-child policy, implemented in 1980, may be why there are 400 million fewer Chinese today than there might have been otherwise. But realistically, a policy like that won't fly hardly anywhere else. And then there's a the question of whether it even matters that every year we add all those people, the equivalent of four more Beijings or 10 more New York cities. Now, I'm sure a lot of you saw an editorial in the Times about 10 days ago that argued exactly that, because it dealt precisely with food, the topic of our, our, our discussion tonight. No problem, it said, because the more people there are, the more human ingenuity we'll have to solve the problem of, of how to feed more of us. Now, although that sounds like circular, if not downright magical thinking, a lot of pundits and economists believe that we can have our planet and eat it too. But the question I left dangling at the end of the world without us, namely, what is the sustainable carrying capacity of this planet for our species? You know, factoring in our consumptive behavior, etc. That became one of the main points that people wanted to discuss during the ensuing book tours. And as one of my sources for this book, a Harvard anthropologist named Susan Greenog points out, the population question is the intersection between natural science and social science. Actually, it's more like a collision between them. 
I mean, it's easy to grasp that in a national park, balance must be maintained between predators and prey, lest the ecosystem crash. But when we're talking about our own species, it gets a lot harder. We're hardly objective about ourselves, and all kinds of religious and other vested interests get involved. Nevertheless, I was surprised that the overwhelming majority of readers, even including some economists and some priests, were grateful that I'd raised the issue. But it's such a loaded topic, fraught with conflicts between knowledge, instincts, emotion, and beliefs, that finally I decided I had to really examine this, not as an advocate or a foe of population management, but examine it as a journalist, researching and weighing facts from as many possible sources as I could find. Ultimately, my field research boiled down to four questions I ended up asking in 21 countries I visited over two years, beginning in Israel and Palestine and ending in Iran, with much of Europe, Asia, Africa, and the Americas in between. The questions were, number one, how many people can fit on this planet without tipping it over? Number two, the converse. How much nature must we preserve to ensure our own survival? Or can we possibly know what other species are essential to us before we wipe any more out? Number three, is there anything in the history, liturgies, or current circumstances of this huge swath of world cultures, religions, nationalities, etc., that might embrace the idea of so to speak, refraining from embracing so much in times of crisis. And four, if the safe number turns out to be less than the nearly 11 billion that we're currently headed to by century's end, or even less than the 7.2 billion we're already at, is there a way to design an economy that doesn't depend on perpetual growth to prosper so that we might gradually bring our numbers back to a healthy level and keep them there? Now those questions, more than one expert I interviewed said the same thing. They said they may be the most important questions on Earth. But they all added they may be impossible to answer. Now as a journalist, my reply was impossible or not, if such questions are the most important on Earth, we damn well better try. But as I said, they're loaded. And that's especially true when there are political and religious pressures to be fruitful and multiply, to build a mighty tribe or nation. I started this book by plunging directly into one of the hottest examples, Israel and Palestine, where extremes of both are bent on outpopulating each other in a land much of which is a sandbox. I began there because to Jew, Christian, Muslim alike, this is hallowed ground, a place that evokes powerful emotions in all of us. I figured it might get people's attention. Now, Back during the British mandate, before the State of Israel was created in 1947, British ecologists calculated that the carrying capacity of the Holy Land was three and a half million people. The founding Zionist and first Israeli Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion, however, contended that Jewish ingenuity could make the desert bloom. He believed the land could hold more than twice that, six million. Well, today there are nearly 12 million jammed between the Mediterranean and the Jordan. And by the middle of this century, 37 years from now, there will be 21 million and a lot less water. Desalination plants are already running nonstop. They're very coal intensive and they produce more sea salt than Israel can sell. And you don't want to dump it all back in the sea lest you disrupt marine ecology. I met Israeli and Palestinian ecologists, water experts, demographers, and clerics 
who were all frightened about growing numbers. Both a rabbi and a Quranic scholar cited the story of Noah, or Nu, whom God told that in order to save the human race, he also had to save all the animals. We can't have a world without them. But I also met the ultra-devout on all sides who believe it's God's will to come out the winner in this demographic derby and that God will provide for everyone. Now, ecologists sometimes talk about a so-called Netherlands fallacy, namely the fact that so many Dutch who live in Europe's most densely populated country have such a high standard of living, that isn't proof that humans can thrive in essentially an unnatural artificial environment. I heard it often argued in Israel. Technological optimism, one ecologist called it, that they can solve anything if they put their minds to it. Like all of us, though, the Dutch and the Israelis need things that only an ecosystem can provide. Now, fortunately, they can afford to purchase most of those things from elsewhere. The northern half of the Holy Land, where most Israelis live, by the way, is nearly twice as densely packed as Holland, which is the densest of all the European countries. One ecologist who was also a Talmudic scholar cited the story, cited the story of Joseph, was born at a time when Israelites were polygamous. It was a strategy to have many children so the tribe would grow quickly. But then Joseph, possibly the first ecologist, correctly noted that, at a time, that a time of scarcity was imminent. One of 13 children himself, he confined himself to just one wife, two sons, and he advised Egypt's pharaoh that it was time for everyone to conserve in order to save themselves, which they did. I have a modern example later in the book. Among the countries I visited that have discovered non-coercive, completely voluntary ways of bringing their population down is one that surprises a lot of people here. The same year as its 1979 Islamic Revolution, Iran actually applied coercion the opposite direction, charging every fertile female to do her patriotic duty and get pregnant to help build a 20-million-man army to fight off the invading Iraqis. By some estimates, at one point, Iran's growth rate peaked at 4.2%, near the biological limits for fertile women and the highest population increase the world had ever seen. But once it was finally over, the director of Iran's planning and budget office realized they had a big problem. He calculated the number of people that their shattered economy might reasonably support. All those males born to man the 20 million man army would need jobs, and the chances for providing them shrank with each new birth. He and others met with a supreme leader to warn of the instability of a nation filled with frustrated, angry, under, or unemployed young men. So soon thereafter, the country that had told its females to all get pregnant for the good of the nation was posting banners across the road reading, one is good, two is enough. A new Ayatollah, he's still in power today, issued a fatwa stating that when wisdom dictates that you do not need more children, a vasectomy is, is permissible. A female OBGYN in Tehran told me what it was like being on the teams of doctors that went on horseback to health clinics in the remotest villages, and later by four-wheel drive and even helicopters, offering everything from condoms to pills to tubal ligations, all for free. But it was also all voluntary. Everyone could choose the number of children they wanted. The only obligation was to, to attend premarital counseling, either in a mosque or in a health center, which is not a bad idea for anybody. Among the things discussed in those classes was how much it costs to feed, care for, and educate children. 
Now, the other crucial part of Iran's family planning program was encouraging women to go to school because they tend to postpone their childbearing until they complete their education. In fact, everywhere I went, even the poorest countries, female education is the most effective contraceptive of all. Because once she's out of school, a woman has some new and useful and interesting things to do with her life and a means to make a living for her family. Overwhelmingly, educated women have two children or fewer. In Iran today, where today 60% of university students are female, population growth came down to replacement rate a year faster than in China. Let's get back to food, because it's one of the two reasons why the human race, after barely growing for the first 99% plus of our existence, suddenly exploded, beginning in the 19th, but mainly in the 20th century. Population only increases in two ways. More people are born than die, or people live longer. So they're still hanging around when others are born. For much of human history, most babies didn't see their first birthday, and about half were dead by their fifth. Since two people, one man and one woman, who produced two children, essentially replaced themselves, the fact that population grew so slowly until about two centuries ago means that even though a woman might have seven or eight, the average number of children who survived long enough to have kids themselves was barely more than two, and average life expectancy was about 40 years. Now, back then, in 1798, Edward Jenner discovered a vaccine for smallpox, a disease that used to knock back our numbers by millions each year. That was soon followed by other medical advances, vaccinations for other diseases, antiseptics, eradication of insects that carried epidemics, pasteurization of milk, and suddenly fewer were dying young and people were living longer. Now, none of us over 40 would ever argue that medical technology is a bad thing because without it, most of us wouldn't be here. It's important to understand, though, that whenever we cure another disease, more people stay alive to beget more people. For years, Bill and Melinda Gates, like many others, have dedicated much time and money to eradicate diseases such as malaria and HIV. And if you've ever witnessed the ravages of either, you pray that they will succeed and soon. But in recent years, the Gateses have come to realize that solving one problem would exacerbate another on a stressed and stretched planet. So now they're major funders of family planning. When there are too many of us, it's increasingly more complicated to keep ourselves and human civilization healthy. But an even more significant boost to our numbers than modern medical technology came from modern food technology. Just before World War II, two Germans, chemists Fritz Haber and Karl Bosch, an engineer, invented something that has changed the world arguably more than anything else ever. That was a way to pull nitrogen from the air and apply it chemically to soils. Before the Haber-Bosch process, the amount of plant life on the planet was limited to what a relatively few species like legumes with roots that host nitrogen-fixing bacteria could contribute to the soil. Artificial nitrogen fertilizer derived from a double dose of fossil fuels, both as its feedstock and because it burns a lot of fuel to make the stuff, simply blew the lid off of what nature can do. Let me put it this way. More than 40% of us couldn't be here without it. Take away artificial fertilizer, our population would be little more than half what it is today. Small wonder that both men won Nobel Prizes. 
Now, to a certain extent, Fritz Haberd mitigated the population spurt he unleashed by also inventing the mustard gas that Germany used in World War I and a cyanide-based pesticide fumigant he created to use in grain storage was later refined by Nazi chemists into Zyklon B, the gas used in the extermination camps, which was made in a factory that Karl Bosch headed. Now, both of them were fervent anti-Nazis, but they lost control of their creations. And some would argue that that not only applies to nerve gas, but to nitrogen fertilizer, which has downsides that we all now well know. Force-feeding our crops with chemicals sterilizes soils, fouls downstream waters, kills off New Jersey-sized uh, chunks of the ocean at the mouths of the world's rivers, and emits a lot of nitrous oxide, the most potent greenhouse gas after CO2 and methane. The Times op-ed that I mentioned earlier was titled, Overpopulation is Not a Problem. In it, geographer Earl Ellis of the University of Maryland, Baltimore, asserted that there's no environmental reason for people to go hungry now or in the future. Our Paleolithic ancestors, he explained, devised stone tools, fire, and finally agriculture to reshape ecosystems, provide us more sustenance, and ever since we've constantly contrived new food technologies to sustain more humans. Population growth itself, he argued, is the mother of invention, always stimulating us to coax more food from the land. Our planet's human caring capacity, he concluded, emerges from the capabilities of our social systems and our technologies more than from any environmental limits. Now, when I first read that, I thought, wow, what a comfort that must be to the more than one billion hungry people on this planet. Unfortunately, as Pope Benedict XVI acknowledged in a 2009 encyclical, our social systems are doing an ever lousier job of sharing the bounty of the land. The Pope was particularly angered by the problem that maddens many of you here who are trying to help feed the world, that so much of the food on this planet is not actually grown to feed people, to make money. The fact that so much of our vast agricultural prowess is devoted to producing a commodity, not just sustenance for all, is why the commonly heard plea that we could feed everyone if only harvests were distributed more equitably. Unfortunately, it's just not realistic. Nevertheless, like Mr. Ellis, Pope Paul also contended in that encyclical, on this earth, there's room for everyone through hard work and creativity. So in 2011, while researching this book, I visited the Vatican's Pontifical Academy of Sciences, which, to the previous pope's dismay, had warned in 1994 that it was now, quote, unthinkable to sustain indefinitely a birth rate beyond 2.3 children per couple. The demographic consequences would be unsustainable to the point of absurdity." Unquote. Nevertheless, the church still encourages population growth. So where, I asked the Academy's current director, would we get food for nearly 10 billion by mid-century with so many already malnourished? Wouldn't clearing forests for farming be disastrous? more forests even, would be set by floods and erosion. China alone is spending $40 billion to put trees back. And force-feeding crops with chemistry is now backfiring on us in frightening ways. Well, the answer, I was told, would be through increased yields new, using new transgenic crops being designed at the centers of the Green Revolution. That's CIMIT, the International Maize and Weed Improvement Center in Texcoco, Mexico, and IRI, the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines. 
Now, as I'm sure most of you know, in the 1960s, just as burgeoning populations in the developing world were nearing the brink of famine, a miracle of genetic breeding occurred at those centers that more than doubled the world's grain harvests. In some cases, increasing yields tenfold. Green Revolution food technologies are often touted for debunking dire predictions of inevitable famines as population growth outpaces food production. Made by economist Thomas Robert Malthus and his latter-day analogs, ecologists Paul and Anne Ehrlich, the authors of The Population Bomb. But when I went to both Simit and Erie, I met no food scientists there who agreed with that. Actually, they said, in Green Revolution founder Norman Borlaug's 1970 Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, he warned that his work had essentially bought the world maybe a generation or two of time to resolve overpopulation. There can be no permanent progress in the battle against hunger until the agencies that fight for increased food production and those who fight for population control unite in a common effort, Norman Borlaug had concluded. And later, he would be awarded the Congressional Gold Medal by the United States for having saved more, life, more lives than anyone in history. But Norman Borlaug understood well the paradox of food. The more we produce, the more people don't die of starvation, and they live to beget more people that need to be fed. Until his death in 2009, Borlaug served on the boards of population groups because he had seen that what Malthus had only theorized back in 1798 was coming true. Food production can't keep up with the very population growth it helps produce. And as a result, we have those billion hungry people today. And despite everybody's best efforts, it's likely going to get worse. The first two places where the Green Revolution was tried were India and Pakistan. Both were saved from what seemed like certain famine which Paul and Anne Ehrlich had predicted, unless, as they said in the preface to the population bomb, an agricultural miracle occurred. And it did. But as a result, in about a decade from now, India will surpass China as the most populous nation on Earth. And Pakistan is one of the fastest growing. Pakistan today has 185 million people in a country not much bigger than Texas, which has 26 million. And by mid-century, if its growth continues apace, Pakistan will far outnumber today's United States, with a projected 395 million people all in a land the size of Texas. And a significant portion of them are frustrated, angry, unemployed young men. In India, Dr. G.S. Kalkat, who's the head of the Punjab State Farm Commission, and also the man who directed implementation of India's Green Revolution back in the 1960s, told me what India's three biggest problems are. Population, population, and population. Three Sikh farmers I met in his office took me to their villages, where I spent a day mostly interviewing widows of farmers who'd killed themselves because levels in the 50-foot wells originally dug to water Green Revolution crops now have dropped to 500 and even a thousand feet, and they couldn't afford to keep drilling. According to figures from their farm union, which I corroborated with the Indian government, 270,000 Green Revolution Indian farmers have committed suicide since 1995. Overwhelmingly, the symbolic method of choice is by drinking pesticide, 
which must be used to protect their laboratory-bred crops that didn't evolve in nature. Half our people are sick from pesticides, one of them told me. Heart attacks, high blood pressure, cancer. Our kids have skin diseases and bad eyesight. No matter how much they eat, they're anemic. Their teachers call them slow learners. And their fathers, all of them, are 200,000 rupees in debt on every acre. We're all suicides in waiting. We're all on each other's suicide watch. Uh, today, more than half the human race lives in cities, compared to only a third of us in 1950. Now, since kids in urban areas aren't an economic asset to parents like they are on farms, it's been widely assumed that world population will level off at around 9.2 billion by mid-century. But even though we're growing more slowly, there are already so many of us that this past June, the UN's Population Division's latest revision now, protect, it now projects that our numbers will keep growing, hitting nearly 11 billion by the end of the century with no sure peak in sight. In the next 50 years, Hans Joachim Braun, Norman Borlaug's successor at Simmet's Weed Improvement Program, told me, we'll need to produce as much food as has been consumed over our entire human history. They were trying, he said. Geneticists there and at Erie showed me what the Vatican was talking about. Experiments to hot rod photosynthesis in hopes of increasing plant productivity up to 50% over previous Green Revolution yields and possibly even to give grains enough energy to fix their own nitrogen to minimize artificial fertilizer needs. But, everyone acknowledged, even if they can do this, commercial synthesizing crops are at least 20 to 25 years away. And by then, there will be billions more of us. And agro-engineers face another growing problem spawned by growing populations. As ever more of us expel more carbon, our overloaded atmosphere overheats the planet. Grains have temperature thresholds. For every one degree centigrade of warming, many scientists warned me, harvests drop 10%. Now, with our world now headed beyond a two de degree centigrade increase at present emission rates, populations will be up, food production down, irrigation water scarcer, and coastal dikes may have to protect much of the world's rice production, which is probably an unaffordable scenario. And rosy predictions you may have heard that northern Canada and Siberia will be breadbaskets in a warmer world neglect that those conifer-covered, acetic taiga soils will take millennia to adapt to the needs of crops. Worldwide, about half of grain production is used for animal feed. In the U.S., it's 70%, and a third of our corn is fed to cars. Vegans constantly scream that we could feed everybody if we didn't do all that. But our species is omnivorous, and though some of us may avoid eating hoofed creatures, myself included, as more people become urban and developed, the truth is, is that demand for meat just keeps rising. Now, incidentally, two years ago, Robert Goodland and Jeff Hong of the World Bank totaled up the grand total of livestock feed, livestock flatulence, forest to pasture loss, packaging, cooking temperature, waste production, fluorocarbons used in meat refrigeration, carbon-intensive medical treatment of both livestock and of meat eaters who suffer from heart disease, cancers, diabetes, high blood pressure, and strokes, 
and even the cumulative CO2 exhaled by the world's 19 billion chickens, 1.6 billion cattle, and water buffalo, 1 billion pigs, and 2 billion sheep and goats. Their conclusion was that livestock and their byproducts account for at least 51% of annual worldwide greenhouse emissions. Now, since you may be wondering, at one point in my book, I do look at the prospects for that vegan dream, test tube meat. But even artificial meat has to come from something. So currently, there are experiments using things like blue-green algae, pig stem cells, and in Japan, human waste as feedstock. Yeah. But just like jet-propelled photosynthesizers, the guess is, is that commercial viability may be 30 years off. So with 40% of the non-frozen terrestrial Earth now dedicated to feeding ourselves, everywhere I went, I spent a lot of time researching that second crucial question. How much nature do we need to preserve to assure our own viability? How will we know if we push something off this planet that we didn't realize we needed till too late? In Countdown, we go to Latin America and China, where ecologists in a worldwide effort called the Natural Capital Project have shown something rather wonderful, that croplands closest to forests do much better than those farther away. In Costa Rica, coffee yields from bushes adjacent to rainforest were yielding 20% higher than plants a kilometer away because birds, bats, native bees, and reptiles were pollinating and providing pest control. Conversely, a surprising number of species, and not everything, of course, many larger mammals have vanished, but a great many others nonetheless appear to be hanging on in the ribbons of remaining forests in farmed landscapes. As pristine wilderness grows too fragmented to sustain everything, the project founder, Gretchen Daly of Stanford, and her colleagues believe that the future of biodiversity will be determined by what happens in agricultural countrysides across the Earth's tropics and temperate regions. In Nepal, where overpopulation is not just a human, but a bovine problem, as cows are sacred and can't be killed, I saw an ingenious World Wildlife Fund-funded old cow's home that gave aging beasts a dignified final chapter rather than to keep them working with this arthritis ointment they were using that had proved toxic to eight endangered species of vultures. Now the cows get a proper Hindu funeral and their untainted carcasses feed the newly replenished thriving vulture populations. In the Philippines, surrounded by the world's biologically richest seas, despite a national government that has long genuflected the world's most conservative Catholic bishops, in the Philippines, I saw fishing villages taking family planning into their own hands because they were coming to understand that if they want to keep fishing, which is the source of 90% of Filipino protein, they have to keep the number of fishermen in balance with fish stocks. Across the water in Japan, here's a story from the book. The last wild oriental white stork had vanished in 1971. In 1989, a stork hatchery at Toyoka, which is an hour from Kyoto, successfully reproduced some using breeding pairs from Russia. But the local rice fields soaked each year with organomercury pesticides were too toxic for the fledgling birds to be released. In 2004, a 10-year-old schoolgirl named Yuka Okada heard that storks like those caged birds in Toyoka's hatchery had once filled the skies and nested on every chimney. After learning why they no longer did, 
she went to the mayor and demanded that Toyuka serve organic rice for school lunches. To do that meant eliminating mercury, inviting back grasshoppers, but also making the rice paddies safe for storks. The mayor, upon hearing the simple truth from a 10-year-old, could only agree. His city's slogan became, an environment good for storks must be good for humans, too. The next plantings were pesticide-free. A year later, the first stork was released, and today, wherever they nest, the rice is twice as valuable because the presence of storks guarantees its purity. An economy that had bottomed was rejuvenated, and today, tourists flock to Toyuka to watch hundreds of storks doing the same. Now, is this just a little story about a luxury food item, high-end organic rice? Actually, no. This is the scenario that Japanese economist Akihiko Matsutani believes Japan is headed to as one of the first countries on Earth whose population has begun to shrink. The reason for that is that for four years, is that four years after World War II, Japan had to cut off its baby boom. So when the war ended, Japanese soldiers went home and, like ours, took up with their wives where they'd left off. And Japan's wartime population of 72 million soon spread it to 83 million. But having lost, Japan's economy was wrecked, and people were starving. So in 1949, in an, in an emergency measure, Japan legalized abortion. This was before you know, the birth control pill. And millions of Japanese women partook, lest they have more babies die of hunger. So today, as the aged large generation preceding those truncated baby boomers dies off, there's a much smaller generation to replace them. Now you add to that high education and the low fertility that naturally follows, and just past the middle of this century, Japan will be back to its 1945 population. And many Japanese economists are terrified by that. But Akihiko Matsutani, who is no radical, but an economist at a major policy institute, sees it as an opportunity. When I met him, Japan had just compounded its shrinkage by losing its most fertile fruit growing area, Fukushima, and all its nuclear power. Matsutani envisions a gradual realignment away from heavy exporting industries in big port cities to a dispersed economy of lighter industries and agriculture distributed across a landscape that younger people are starting to return to as empty houses vacated by that last dying overgrown, overgrown generation are coming available cheaply. Lifestyles, he predicts, will actually improve. Wages won't drop because laborers will be fewer and therefore more valuable. But hours will also be fewer as demand shrinks with population. Prosperity will be redefined to mean having more leisure time to enjoy rather than by being able to afford more consumer toys to occupy far too few hours. Now, this is not a bad vision for a workable future, though most economists can't imagine it because, to them, the definition of economic health is perpetual growth. The late economist Julian Simon, who is known for preaching that human ingenuity ensured that resources would never run out, famously won a 1980 bet with Paul Ehrlich that the price of five commodity metals wouldn't rise due to growing scarcity over the coming decade. Now, as The Economist and several others later reported, in subsequent decades, Ehrlich would have won, yet their bet is often cited to discredit his warnings. Also, Simon refused the bet 
that Ehrlich proposed on five environmental indicators, including global temperature, crop yields, and human sperm counts. In 1994, Simon, still ever the cornucopian, declared, both in supply energy to an ever-growing population for the next seven billion years. Well, with population then growing in the world by 1.4% annually, Paul and Ann Ehrlich checked his math and responded that this was unlikely because at current rates, within 6,000 years, the mass of human population would equal the mass of the universe. Otherwise intelligent people spout such nonsense because humans have never had to think about limits before. We're not used to it. Economists warn that if population ever stopped growing, there will be too few laborers paying into pension funds to support too many old people. And for a generation or so, they may be right until, like in Japan, the generations come back into balance. But until that happens, we're just going to have to adjust. I never said this was going to be simple, but nothing in the 21st century will be. Look, here's the bottom line. If we keep on the way we're going and growing, we will add two and a half billion more people in the next 35 years. Because we've already used up the best lands and the cheapest energy resources, they're going to have a much bigger, much dirtier impact than the last two and a half billion. And yes, I know that population increases mainly among the world's poor who don't pack anywhere near as much of an environmental wallop, and that by some measurements, the richest fifth of the world's people consume 66 times as much as the poorest fifth. But our numbers have reached a point where we've essentially redefined the concept of original sin. From the instant we're born, even the humblest among us compounds the world's mounting problems by needing food, firewood, and a roof for starters. Literally and figuratively, we're all exhaling CO2 and pushing other species off the edge. The world's masses may be poor, but more of them are living in cities now where somehow they managed to get cell phones. And whether they've pirated the power or not, they're plugging in their chargers every night, like you and me. Nevertheless, it is true that we, the comparatively affluent, are many orders of magnitude worse. If we multiply our numbers by the amount we consume, it turns out that you and I are sitting in the most overpopulated country on Earth. So the reason I wrote this book was not to ask if we can feed the 11 billion we're headed to, but whether we're already too many. Every species in the history of biology that exceeds the limits of its resource base suffers a population crash, sometimes even a fatal one. I sincerely doubt we're going to make it to 11 billion. One way or another, our population is coming down. Either we manage it gracefully, or nature will do it to us, brutally. Now here's the good news. We can fix this and give a serious respite to our precious environment, without which we cannot live. In this book, I accompany the people who make contraceptives available in places like Uganda, Thailand, Pakistan, where women desperately want and need them, and also the people who pay for them. I was staggered to learn how few the donors are, mainly a few Western governments and four private foundations, and how fragile the supply lines are. If a shipment of birth control pills or Depo-Provera injections doesn't arrive, or a truck carrying, break, carrying them breaks down or gets hijacked, or they disappear from a warehouse, as you women well know, you miss one crucial dose and all those careful efforts are for naught. 
the U.S. is the biggest donor of all. Here's what could happen if we fail to provide it. Without contraception reaching those women in the developing world, our ranks would expand by a million more hungry, pe hungry humans, not every four and a half days, but every two and a half days. That's seven more Beijings a year instead of the four we're currently adding. Put another way, forget all those UN population projections that we take for granted to be true, because just a half a child more per woman, and we'll be nearing not 11, but 16 billion by the end of this century. Or if we provide contraception for all, and I do discuss in here the promising new and far simpler male contraceptives that are coming ready. Anyhow, with contraceptives available to all, we'll be back down to 6 billion, well on our way to a sustainable future for our species, which each decade will be easier, not harder to feed. Sound far-fetched? I fear it's a lot easier than coming up with zero emission energy. We've been trying to tap free sunlight, et cetera, for years, and we're still nowhere near capable of running all of our industries, our vehicles, our cities, our Indias, and our Chinas on it. Nor do we know how to do something even more magical, convince everyone to consume less. By the time that happens, if ever, our world will long be trashed. This, however, this is technology we already have, nothing requiring some enormous leap. As one of our most brilliant physicists, Carnegie's Ken Caldera once told me, if we built a 900 megawatt zero emission plant every day for the next 50 years, we still couldn't keep up with demand. And we don't even know how to build one. But combine contraception with education for females and we will tap one of the richest human resources of all. That same Vietnamese Demographic Institute I mentioned earlier recently calculated that if female education were universally available today, there would be one billion fewer of us, not by the end, but by the middle of this century. And think how all those educated women would help those feared labor shortages during a demographic transition back to sanity. At one point in Countdown, I quote former World Bank economist Herman Daly, on designing an economy that can prosper without perpetual growth, which one day you know, we must come to because we live on a planet that does, doesn't grow. The switch to sustainable economy, wrote Daly in Scientific American in 2005, would entail an enormous change of mind and heart by economists, politicians, and voters. One might well be tempted to declare that such a project would be impossible. But the alternative to a sustainable economy, an ever-growing economy, is biophysically impossible. In choosing between tackling a political impossibility and a biophysical impossibility, I would judge the latter to be more impossible and take my chances with the former. What my research has led me to conclude in researching this book is that what we need to do about this problem is even easier than that because the majority of places and people on Earth are already doing it. More than half the countries in the world are at, near, or below replacement rate. Let's do whatever it takes to help bring the rest there, too. And then, by making the means available so everyone can choose the numbers they want, gradually down towards a truly sustainable number, rather than ask how we're going to do the impossible, 
feed them all when we can't even feed the ones we have without messing up our planet even more. That's it for this Science and the City podcast. For more, visit scienceandthecity.org. You can also follow us on social media. We're Sci and the City on Twitter and Science and the City on Facebook. We always love hearing from you. Thanks for listening.